Welcome to Hooked on Bond, where three long-time fans discuss the James Bond films. Welcome to episode two. Today we are talking about From Russia with Love, from 1963, starring Sean Connery as James Bond. Because back then they only did, they did one movie each year. They uh, didn't want to leave too much time, I think, between opportunities to make money. That's right. They were really turning them out quickly then, weren't they? Yep. And pretty much most people came back for this movie. Most of the crew is all back. and Not all of them, but a lot of the members. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I think the other thing with uh, the kind of uh, enabled them to turn it around so quick is that kind of like with Dr. No, From uh, Russia with Love is still keeping things sort of cut kind of simple. We're not getting into the, the major action scenes and special effects yet. It's, uh, you know, still in many ways a, uh, this, uh, sort of ca- character study. Um, and, uh, with this movie, we're, uh, getting a little bit more into, uh, James Bond, uh, as the, uh, the international lover and love interest. And Spy. This is probably the most spy movie of all the James Bond movies. Yeah, really, I think it's that's really right. It's, it, this is an intrigue movie. Everybody, it's plots and counterplots and spying. Yeah, it's like a spy thriller, really. Yep. The basic setup of it is that uh, we find out at the beginning with the uh, our... British uh, spy team that there has been this offer that they might be able to get their hands on a lector, which is a Russian decoding device for communications codes. And they believe this is almost certainly a trap, but they are going to follow up on this message from a woman who's offering to defect and bring them this lector because they can't turn up on, they can't uh, miss the possibility that maybe they would be able to get a hold of one of these machines. I was going to say, what's really interesting about this movie, and I didn't even think about it as much until this time when I was watching it, but as you say, those are the setups, but truthfully, we know the entire plot beforehand. We know exactly what the villains are doing. We know we're watching the villains watch Bond. It's a, very, it's a very different environment. Most films, you never know what the villains are up to until it finally is revealed. This is a movie from a completely different angle. And I never really gave that too much thought. But uh, here, Connery is the one who knows the least. We know far more than he does. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And we, yeah. we very early on have, this, have a scene with the, the villains basically saying... They, you know, this is identified that this is Spectre that we're watching, and they know about the events of the previous film with Dr. No having been killed, and that they are uh, trying to orchestrate this whole situation where uh, uh, they're bringing the, the East and the West into this new conflict forcing them uh, uh, into each into things with the situation with the lector. And it's very much the villains who are pulling the strings of both sides here. Yep. It's very complex, and I think maybe 
the filmmakers may have realized how complex it was and therefore chose to tell it in this way, like to give all the information ahead of time. I mean, the book did too, but th this way, if, if the movie had tried to hide it, I think it might have been way too com confusing by the end of the film. Yes, and in fact, they did uh, change the order of some of the scenes in editing in order to help get the information across and to make it make sense. Hmm. We should talk about uh, some of the cast here. We have some returning cast members, of course, Sean Connery as James Bond. Uh, we have, not in too many scenes, but we have Bernard Lee back as M and Lois Maxwell back as Miss Moneypenny. Yep. Uh, Eunice, Eunice Gason is back as Sylvia Drench. Yep, once again, yeah. always abandoned yeah. by Bond for work. Right. Gary's favorite, uh, uh, favorite character from the franchise, perhaps? <laughs> I wouldn't say favorite, but it's, I, like I said, I'm glad they dispensed with that, uh, with that running gag after this movie. Um, it's unfortunate she didn't get more work here, but still, it was a little bit silly having Bond drop her every time to go off and mm -hmm. save the world. Drop her after an extra half hour every time. Yes, <laughs> one extra half hour each time was all it ever took. That's another running joke for the Bond movies, is how long he needs uh, in yeah. each of those situations. It's fairly frequently revisited. But yeah, no, this this movie brings back certainly Bernard Lee and Lois Maxwell in those roles, and it, it again, pushes those relationships forward further. I mean, Bond and, and uh, Money Penny have probably their most... Um, romantic moment together, I felt, and uh, mm -hmm. certainly Bond and M again do a very have a very a very father son stuff. There's a line later where Bond is sort of threatening to reveal something that he and M did back in I forget Tokyo maybe I think it's like when they when they're listening to the tape. So you right. realize they've been together for a while and they've had they've they've had a long relationship and it's uh, it's built very nicely in this film. Yes, absolutely. This is the first time we see Desmond Llewellyn, and he's credited as Boothroyd in this film, but we'll know him as Q later on. And yep. this is really the introduction of the gadgetry into Bond, with the, the briefcase with its various booby traps and weaponry as basically the first Bond gadget. Yep, and it seems a useful gadget too. Oh yeah, no, that, that definitely plays a major role. Yes, and it was very popular with the audiences at the time, and that was part of what brought us the gadgetry as such an important part of the Bond films. Yep. And I, th I think right from the beginning, uh, Desmond Llewellyn brought something to the chemistry as well. Absolutely, the scene, the scene is played very nicely for humor. Um, they, they have a good rapport with each other, and uh, I think that's certainly what earned him the role and, and brought him back so many times after that. Yes, absolutely. We have a, quite a cast of, uh, of characters uh, for, for this film as well. Uh, I feel like we have to talk about the, the villains first uh, here for some reason. We have Lottie Lenya playing Rosa Klebb. Yeah. Who, yes. who was uh, def definitely uh, a memorable character and 
a woman who brings some, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, who is very imposing and sort of one of the first uh, female villains of this type, I think, and certainly uh, as a female Bond villain. Yeah, it's a great it's a great performance. I mean, she's uh, she was the wife of Kurt Vile. She was a, a cabaret star and stage star and film star. And she sang. She did pretty much everything, and and she was actually very attractive. And of course, they cast her as this very ugly looking woman. And and she went in a completely different direction from things she had done in the past, and yeah, did and it, it beautifully. It was great. Amazing, amazing. She may have also regretted sort of at the end being known as Rosa Klebb, but she had such a large film career behind her that she was always known for that more than anything else. Yeah, a film and cabaret career, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of people didn't make the connection that, oh, yeah, Rosa Klebb was actually her from, you know, years earlier. Yeah, and she's still name-dropped in Mac the Knife, I think. Oh, the yeah, song absolutely. Mac the Knife. She's right. still Wadalenya yeah. is still mentioned in it. So yeah, no, her name her name will live on Indeed, for a yeah. long time. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean she was, you know, original company of Tripany Opera, so you know, yeah. violin classic piece. So you know, yes. Yeah, so it, 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 it is it is an odd juxtaposition, but uh, you know, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of like she has the the, the two careers. There's uh, her standard theatrical cabaret career, and then yes, there was this, this other other film she did that just happened to become iconic. Yeah, yeah, yeah she's an aw- awesome villain. She plays it so well. Her dialogue's great. They uh, they play up the whole. I mean, in the book, she was written as a lesbian, and they play that up. In her scene oh, yeah. with uh, with Danielle Bianchi, who we'll get to shortly, but another great another great element is that all of her scenes with uh, her co-villain, who we'll also mention, uh, Robert Shaw, he doesn't say anything. Uh, she's the one delivering all the dialogue and all of their scenes together, and it's it's really powerful. She she manages to make those scenes work, but she has no one to sort of have dialogue with. So yeah, it's, it's she... really very good. Yeah, she can do the monologues without making it seem too much like a monologue somehow. Yeah. Yeah, no, she's great. And so Robert Shaw, obviously her co-villain, is another iconic performer. And, uh, I mean, he, he may actually be, this may be the one one thing that he's not best known for this, because, of course, he's best known for having been the captain uh, in Jaws. But... Uh, this is certainly one of his iconic roles, and it's a, it's an amazing performance. Again, for the most part, he's he's there throughout the entirety of the movie, sort of shadowing behind the scenes, and his presence is is extremely menacing at all times. The and fact that he doesn't speak, as well, for the whole first half of the movie, it, it, it adds to the menace because you really don't know anything about him. Yeah, he has a physical presence that really makes it work. And I imagine that was why he was cast, because he just has this really strong physical presence. And yeah, Robert Shaw also had um, uh, quite a career on uh, British television and I think stage and film as well. He's a playwright too, I believe. Okay. I think he, I believe he wrote some, some plays actually. Yeah. Could be wrong, but I yeah, think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, plays, plays, and uh, screenplays as well. Some of which were cross. I mean, at, at, I mean, at, at that time, of course. I mean, you know, there was there was so much 
live TV going on where they would just take uh, theater pieces and just put them in front of the camera. So, but yeah, there was uh, he's uh, I mean, quite quite an uh, accomplished actor, writer. You know, so it's, you know, it's uh, it, it's one of those things where it's kind of ironic in a way that yeah, he's, he's going to become known for for this and Jaws, but uh, you know, the same as with Lottie Lanny, you know, there's just this huge career that was. <laughs> behind all that and one of the reasons why both of them were so good in this. We also have, uh, and I just have to throw this in, uh, Anthony Dawson, who was Professor Dent in Dr. No, appears as the hands of Blofeld. Right. <laughs> the, the, first, the, the opening scenes of the movie are, are great in that we're, we're given the introduction to the, the idea of Spectre as a sort of a hierarchy. With, with a mm -hmm. mysterious number one, and, yes. and his many, many numbered minions, some certain yes. numbered minions, mm -hmm. and yeah, Dawson is the guy sitting in the chair. I think the voice is someone else. The voice is someone else. Yeah. But uh, it, it's a, it's a great scene because you're given the the, the personality of these characters, and uh, you're really given an in entry into what they're about. The scene also introduces the the chess master, the the grandmaster Kronstein. Um, another excellent performance by the actor Vladek Shebal. And I remember reading years ago, I, don't, I haven't read this recently, but I remember reading re years ago that he was sort of asked last minute if he wanted to do this, and he said, no, why would I, why would I want to be in a, in a movie like that? And they said, because you'll be known, it'll, 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 it'll be known around the world, everyone will have seen you. And so he agreed to do it, and then he agreed that that was absolutely true. Yes, yeah. I believe that... Uh, that chess match was an actual recreation of uh, a match that actually happened just a couple years earlier. Hmm. And yeah, it was a well-known sort of Soviet versus Western uh, chess match. And yeah, it sets up this idea that he is sort of the brains behind playing the uh, the British and the Russians against each other for this Lecter device. So it sort of ties that into the strategy and being uh, like a chess game of sorts. Yep, with the pieces moving all over the board. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And, it's, and it helps to reinforce what they had started to set up in Dr. No with the idea of Spectre as this sort of third party or third player in the Cold War. Yeah, and, and much, of the, much of the drama of this movie is simply the Russians and the British forces fighting against each other, not realizing that they're, they're being played. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, as you said, Gary, it's something that is not sort of a typical way you would think of something like this being structured, but that's part of why it works so well. Yeah. So, yeah, so... Uh, uh, beyond the, the villains, of course, you have uh, another another terrific Bond girl, uh, Tatiana Romanova, played by Daniela Bianchi. Uh, again, uh, very early in her career, probably one of her first roles, if not her first role. I believe it was her first role. Yeah, and she dubbed, would, uh, her first major role. She she, she gets the uh, the the introducing introducing <laughs> <laughs> Daniela Bianchi credit. So. <laughs> 
she she was found and chosen for this from a, a fashion show, basically. Like from a, from a um, uh, one of these um, modeling competitions. Hmm. You can see why. But uh, <laughs> again, well, like well, like many other of the Bond actresses in the early movies, she is dubbed, but she does manage to to play the part extremely well. I'm very convinced by her acting in the movie. I really liked her. Yes, and certainly in these first couple films, the dubbing on the the various Bond girls is handled very well. It it um it's uh, it's done pretty seamlessly, which is nice. Yep. And I guess the last the last main character to sort of talk about is uh, the Karen Bay character played yeah. by uh, Pedro Armendariz. And again, the Bond movie, Bond usually has a colorful ally. In the first movie, we talked about it being Quarrel, and he may have had a little too much color. Um, but in this, I, I don't mean that in the color, you know what I mean, just that they overdid it with yeah. the stereotype. But here they tried to yeah. get uh, a more believable character for the, uh, a Turkish merchant who would have been involved in the espionage world. And it's, a, it's an amazing performance. And do you guys know his story about this movie? It's one of the famous bits yes. about it. Yes. But he, that he, yeah, go he, ahead. He was basically dying at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, he was dying of cancer, and uh, his performance was he, he wanted to finish the movie to make some money for his family, and he's basically forcing himself in every scene. The guy just wants to collapse. And, and given that his performance is, is so warm and, and charming, it's really an, yeah. an amazing effort by the guy. Yes, yeah, it's remarkable, <laughs> and it's not something I would have known about until I heard the details about that. And it was, yeah, definitely uh, a remarkable performance under those circumstances, but a very good one uh, regardless of that. Yeah. Yeah, because I know, I mean, I, I first came across that with, you know, more, more along the lines of, you know, sort of, you know, being being dismayed that, you know, the, the, this character died and thinking, you know, like, God, oh, it would have been great if they could, you know, could have kept him around, you know, to, you know, pop up again in a, a later movie, you know, because, you know, the, I mean, he's sort of, I mean, compared to Felix Leiter, who's, you know, a bit of a, you know, a bit of a straight arrow, you know, in, in the first film, in this film, it's like, you know, no, he's sort of, you know, he you know he, he felt more on a on a par with Bond in terms of being sort of the, the man of the world and you know having the mistress and juggling all these things and you know but that, and then to find out it's like you know no that uh, <laughs> there is absolutely no way that could have happened because yeah. you know no this was this was his swan song but uh, you know because uh, you know I, I think this could have been you know could have been an inter- interesting way to go you know to have Bond you know. Have you know, having Bond's allies be you know folks who you know men who were sort of more, more you know on a par with him was uh, was was an interesting way to go. But uh, we uh, at least we have Karen Bay. Well, I love the the concept with that character that he says you know well the Cold War is played a little bit differently here. You know we watch them, they watch us. We we mm-hmm. let them watch us, they let you know. You know all yeah. of uh, this sort of thing, and he he happens to have uh, a periscope that was installed in the uh, the <laughs> Russian consulate. Yeah, I've, 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 I I to this day I'm still wondering about just what what the consulate end of that thing looks like. <laughs> 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 
it works wonderfully for the film. <laughs> this is uh, another movie that it, it takes great uh, advantage of its locations, uh, filming in yeah. Istanbul, and uh, it's it's really a beautiful film to watch again and again because they use all the they use all the locations, the Bosphorus. They take the crews on the Bosphorus. They visit mm -hmm. the uh, the Hagia Sophia Mosque. And uh, and of course, like as you said, that scene with the periscope, they go to the underground cistern, um, <clears throat> which is which is really great. I, I was just there last summer, and you can still visit that. You can't take a boat in it, of course. They have walkways built like through it and around it uh, for for tourists. Okay. But you you definitely can spend quite a lot of time in there with those columns and the water. They use that extensively in this film. They go to it more than once. Yeah, well, it's such an amazing location to use. Can't blame them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, they also have a good chunk of the film set uh, on board a train, which of course is a tradition they're carrying forward from a whole variety of earlier films. Mm -hmm. yep. And uh, that's something that was, uh, that was used very well, I think. We have the same director as we did with Dr. No. Terence uh, Young is here again. And I think some of that uh, style and panache continues to show through, especially on some of the scenes with the trains. There is uh, a scene where Bond is walking uh, down the train, down the railway station platform to meet another character, and the Robert Shaw character, Grant is walking almost alongside him on the train and the yeah. shots for that were just beautifully filled in mm -hmm. so we had some nice things there <coughs> and some uh, extensive things on the train the, the uh, train sequences which are sort of more later in the film uh, they bring in sort of a bit more of a speaking role for Robert Shaw as Grant, where he impersonates a British agent. Uh, and of course, Bond sees through that fairly quickly. But we get this, uh, this whole sequence where this character we've been watching as this physical character who we barely see speaking, all of a sudden is uh, doing this heavy speaking role impersonating another man. And, and he's doing it in a sort of a posh accent, a little bit of a, uh, maybe, I don't know how you describe it, but he's overdoing the accent a bit. Yeah, it, it was a deliberately or... overdone RP accent, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, what makes it, that's what makes it nice when you finally get him really talking as who he is in the last scene with Bond, where he just drops all the pretense and talks to him with a much crueler voice it's a really powerful moment yeah you're finally seeing him for what he is that's right yeah yeah I think even with the relatively small amount they had there I think the chemistry between Sean Connery and Robert Shaw was pretty good absolutely and it, it oh, yeah. leads to yet another in the in the Bond films iconic series which is the train fight which is yeah. largely considered one of the best fights ever on screen um, mm -hmm. It just shows up in all kinds of things, that, that idea. Every train fight or any fight in an enclosed space is often compared to that, that scene. Mm -hmm. 
it was a very brutal sort of fight they did there, actually. Yeah, but yeah, but I mean, that, I mean that, that, but that's that's what makes it work. Is you know, no, it's these, you know, the, it's these two guys in a space, and unlike you know, they, I mean, there's a lot of sort of Hollywood stage fights, you know, where you, you, where you it, it, you're, you're all too aware that it's the you know the stunt people you know, pulling punches or missing punches, and with this, I mean, you just get that visceral sense of, you know, no, these two powerful men, you know, just grinding it out to get what, you know, what whatever advantage they can, and, you know, I mean, in terms of the whole choreography and the way it's shot, I mean, you just, you know, at, at every moment, I mean, you just sort of get that sense of, you know, the, the balance tipping back and forth between them throughout it and you know and sort of every, you know every, every shift of um you know of advantage and position you know just, just really feels earned and it i mean it, it's just a, a beautifully done sequence I absolutely mean, you know, yeah. yeah and, and for that i think to some extent along with the stunt people you, you have to thank someone like uh, peter hunt who was the early editor, editor on, on yeah. most of these movies and uh his work his work is obvious in the first movie all the way through anything that any fight that just looks different um, mm -hmm. and, and just feels different, it's, it's Hunt's work. And it, it's really amazing. He would cut like yeah. frames out at various points to speed up the shot and to give it a more visceral feel to it. And yeah, he, it, he was very sort of clever and innovative with how he cut scenes together, for sure. Yeah. No question. Yeah. Robert Shaw as Grant really was the first Bond henchman. And this this fight scene sets the tone for the big, you know, the big fight with Bond against the henchmen towards the end of the film. And, you know, again, we're sort of seeing the various things that become part of the, you know, the standard tradition for Bond films gradually being put into place. And this is one that comes in in From Russia With Love. Yep, definitely, and uh, it's it's obviously one of the best examples. So everything that follows is always compared to it, and there are a few yeah. that actually there are a few we'll discuss eventually that actually almost rise to the level of this fight. So it, it's it's really good. Yeah, there yeah, are actually uh, in a lot of ways actually later uh, Bond films and later films of other types are compared to From Russia with Love. It's sort of considered one of the high water marks very often. Yep, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, because I mean, also, I mean, it's that whole thing. Of, you know, you have the big fight, and then you know, it's like you know, no, you know, you've gotten rid of Robert Shaw, and then you know, you, you've still got this this time to go before the end of the movie, and you know, of course, lo, lo and behold, uh, Lottie Lenya pops back up to uh, try and uh, complete the mission. You know, you know, which becomes, you know, it becomes another staple of, you know, no, you get through what you think is the big fight, and then there's that one last little, you know, uh, sting or a tag. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I wouldn't call it just a wrinkle. It's like, you know, no, you know, then there's, you know, there's, there's that, uh, you know, that last final attempt that he's, he's got to fend off before, uh, before he gets through it. Yeah, absolutely. And in this case. There's the extra wrinkle in that last little bit with um, with Rosa Klebb coming back in, which is that the the main Bond girl, Tatiana Romanova, uh, used to work for Rosa Klebb. So there's this 
uh, this sense of, you know, well, wait, where does she stand now? It's not and, clear how much Bond explained to her over the previous couple of days. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and she does, you know, she does, in that scene, she does sort of wave the gun back and forth, like, it's almost like, who should mm -hmm. she shoot? Yes. Oh, yeah. Is she having trouble aiming, or is she having trouble <laughs> deciding? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I always took it as having trouble deciding. <laughs> But, but, but in, in a way, I mean, you know, I mean, of course, I mean, that, that's bringing up, I mean, you know, what becomes another of the staples of, you know, no, I mean, you know, she, in the end, she does decide that she, she's with Jane. Um, but, uh, you know, this, this, this whole trope of, you know, but, you know, Bond being able to, you know, sort of bring these women around to his side. Um, and, uh, you know, but it's interesting, I mean, in this, in this first example, it's like, you know, no, it's not like, you know, she's just, you know, head over heels for him. It's like, you know, no, there is, you know, there is that moment of hesitation because it was certainly established early on that, you know, no, she was a, you know, a, a very loyal, you know, party member and, uh, you know, w willing to, uh, you know, take the orders of, uh, of her superior. So, you know, she, she does have the, the, that, those years of training that uh, James has had to, uh, rode away in the uh, last few days. Yeah, there are some nice little uh, little bits in that which are um, which are really sort of neat. Uh, there are a few other things that I think um, from Russia with Love set the tone with. Uh, one I think is the the music. We now have John Barry as the the uh, the score writer and it's starting to sound more like the Bond films generally do. Uh, the Bond theme is still showing up in slightly odd places, but um, is sort of fitting into it uh, more so. That's also because uh, Barry's composed the 007 theme, which is that is the sort of the triumphant music that often plays. During the end, uh, uh, during the end, during the big action sequences of many Bond movies. Yes. So that and sort of that becomes the action triumph uh, music. That's right, and that works really well in this. And that was something that uh, that sort of added to the sound of the the Bond films. I think the um, the opening gun barrel shot now has the music timed with it. How it is. Uh, uh, later on, typically, uh, again in the uh, the gun barrel sequence, Bond still has his hat. I think it is Sean Connery in there this uh, I time. Think it probably is Sean Connery in this one. Yeah. Yes, one. it is. Yeah. And for the the first time, we have a real Bond song. Yeah, although it uh, uh, that's true. It's an instrumental over the initial credits and. Uh, but we do get the vocals over the, the closing credits. And uh, it's sort of a song that's unique to the film that is used on the, the opening titles. That's right. Uh, but yeah, we get it with the full vocal uh, for the closing. Yeah. But it's sort of nice to see those things um, uh, falling into place along with the, the gadgetry, with the briefcase, which... Uh, which comes into play very nicely on the train. Yep. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. Uh, although I, I should I should have mentioned about the song. The song is sort of slowed down for the crooner version at the end, 
but the opening yeah. titles are a much more as a much more aggressive mix of the song, um, and it's of course done with the famous uh, belly dancer, which is really where we bring the whole sexual opening credits into the the picture. Because the first movie we just had a lot of flashing dots and some swaying shapes, but it's with this movie that the producers realize they can get away with quite a bit if they stick it in the opening credits and sort of deal with it in a very artistic way. That's right, yeah. yeah. Although in some ways, I think the later opening title sequences borrow a lot from Dr. No, with the animated look and with the sort of animated silhouettes. But certainly, um, uh, a lot of what you see here goes forward as well. Yeah, although of course, this is not Maurice Binder here, it's actually Robert Brown John, uh, who, who did the credits, I think he does the credits for this one, and I think he does Goldfinger too, but maybe I'm wrong about that. He definitely does this one. Um, so Binder was out for this picture, but uh, would eventually come back and, and do most of them. Yeah, and, uh, and of course, exactly. I mean, you, you, you could even argue with, with, with this one, I mean, it does have some relation to the uh, plot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. There, you know, you know, it's like no, no. There, there, there is belly dancing in the movie. So, yeah, no, it's a completely <laughs> logical inclusion. Yes, Absolutely. we haven't really <laughs> talked about the gypsy sequence, have we? No, well, that was going to come up in our favorite scenes in the movie, wasn't it? Okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we can talk about that now. It's uh, go ahead. Yeah. Still giving you a teaser there. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, maybe we should go into our take on things then, and say, oh. well. What did you like about this film? <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of the gypsy sequence, I was just going to say that yeah. it's, it's again, uh, Bond movies, not only did they go uh, to all these kinds of locations, but they always made an effort to, to find something very local within each film. So in this one, it, it uh, tries to do the gypsy storyline. It does, does a very, it does a pretty good job of it. I mean, I think perhaps the, the fight to the death over the chief's son may be a bit exaggerated. But it makes for mm -hmm. a, an amusing scene, for sure. Um, the character is really good. The whole character of the Gypsy Camp, the whole relationship, Bond's immediate, uh, their immediate adoption of Bond because he fights for them is, is a powerful moment. Yes, and I like the, um, the idea that um, uh, the, the Turks were working with the Gypsies and the the Russians were working with someone else. The, the Bulgars. The Bulgars, right. And, oh, I'm afraid it started a blood feud between them. <laughs> you know, just, First just time ever. Just ca casual comment from, from Karen Bay, you know. Oh, I'm afraid there's a blood feud there now. Which, yeah, no, uh, it, it's a really good scene. It's probably the first... Uh, at least hinted at Bond three-way, and maybe the only Bond three-way <laughs> ever hinted at in the uh, in the films. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh. But they certainly were sorry to see him go when he leaves the camp at the end of that sequence. Yes, they yeah. were. Yes. And they kind of gave up on the chief's son too. It, it always struck mm -hmm. me as amusing if that happened. I think perhaps <laughs> maybe the chief's son was killed in the battle, but they were never making it very clear. That's right. Yeah, there was the battle when the Bulgars came in, and it was, it was, um, and the the Russians as well. It was, uh, it was a good sequence. It was well done, yep. and it um, sort of highlights 
how the uh, how Spectre is playing the sides off each other, because you have the the moment where uh, Grant, the Robert Shaw character, from a sniper position he has, shoots someone who's about to attack Bond because yep. he needs Bond alive. Yep, the, the plot yep. must go on. Yep, yep. Yeah, well, yeah, when he's sort of setting up that, uh, you know, that uh, ongoing trope of, you know, no, you know, you, you, you can't get Bond, Bond's for me. <laughs> yeah, uh, another, another great iconic scene in the movie, or at least setting up for future films, is the classic, you failed, uh, you failed, you didn't complete your mission correctly, and so now you pay the price. The whole specter, what happens if you don't fulfill your mission? Well... Things yeah. don't go too well for you, and, and I gotta say, if you're if you're like if you're an inspector in their top ranks, and you've just printed a business card saying you're number six, well, that changes pretty quickly. I don't think you'd really want to get into doing that, because inspector no. numbers are fairly, if there if there if there actually is a hierarchy and not just numbers, like in other words, if six is killed, does everyone move up? Because that would happen quite a lot. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I always got the sense it was pretty fluid, and <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you're not number five for very long, or as as we see, number three doesn't have a very long shelf life either. Mm -hmm. But uh, the scene where where Kronstein's killed is certainly a, a good one. Oh, and it also points out another another small uh, bit role actor in this movie is uh, I don't even remember his character name to be honest, but it's uh, the Spectre sort of major domo. He sort of hangs around in the background of a lot of scenes. He's at Spectre Island at the beginning. Uh, he right. kills Kronstein. He gets blown right. up in the boat at the end. Is Walter Gotell, who, uh, of course, would eventually reappear in the James Bond movies as General Gogol. That, and it's, it's that's always... going more towards the 1980s. That was many years later. Yes, but it's interesting yeah. that he oh, was sure. there at the beginning, and they obviously liked him, and they might have been friends with him in some way, and they eventually brought him mm -hmm. back. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I quite like that. Sadly, they never brought back Specter Island, which actually seems like a really cool place to visit. Right. <laughs> I'm a little sorry they never addressed that issue. It's probably still out there waiting. Yeah. Yeah. We also get the villains with the weird ways of killing people with the the shoe with the knife, the poison knife that pops out of the end. Yep. A yeah. classic. Classic. I mean, it may well, be, was, okay, but, 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 but to this day, I still, it, it, uh, it still doesn't feel like the most effective way of going after someone. I mean, good, good for surprise, yes, but uh, once they know it's there, it's... Uh, <laughs> yeah, as, as Bond's chair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It would seem rather easy to just pin her to the wall with a chair and stand back. <laughs> But yes, I mean, in, ter in terms of visuals, it is, it, 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 it is a classic. <laughs> yeah, it's just not one you want to not one you want to think about too much. Well, it's one of those moments of the sort of the the weird and bizarre things that the Bond villains will use, and that uh, I would say escalates from there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's some also some really good. Uh, the movie does finally rev up into the action genre towards the end of the film, and uh, there's some really good scenes there. The, the helicopter scene is really tense. It sort of reminds me of like Hitchcock with the the whole 
um, the the cornfield scene in, in North by Northwest. Right. Yes. Yeah. The uh, the being chased by the plane is definitely definitely has a North by Northwest kind of feel to it. Yeah, and then the the big boat sequence at the end is also really well done. Uh, the iconic shot of Connery sort of shooting the barrels to set them off is usually on the cover of all the DVDs, and it it is an iconic shot. Like yeah, the, right. when the when the film lines up that shot and sort of moves back from it, it's a really great moment. Mm-hmm. Then that's when the, the the 007 theme kicks in at that point, and or does it? No, actually, I think everything blows up at that point. Yes, I think that's right. <laughs> but yes, that was uh, that was uh, a big scene for them, and it uh, sort of plays into the the tradition that develops of the practical effects being a big deal for the Bond series. Yeah. That, you know, they're not doing as many uh, sort of electronic after, uh, uh, you know, post-production effects or model work effects, although they use some, but they do a lot of these practical effects where they're designing something uh, uh, right on location or on set. And certainly you had some a big one there with the uh, with the explosion on the water there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a the Bond trope of everything has to blow up at the end uh, is also is also dealt with here. As is Bond and the girl ending up in a boat. Yes, yes, another common common thread, or at least near water. Yeah, water is also is is a key. There's usually water nearby. Right. Right. But yeah, that does seem to uh, that does seem to happen a lot in the early movies, for sure. So we've covered a lot of this already, but let's get to the specifics. What did you like? Well, again, this is another one of the movies that I, I really have almost no criticisms regarding. Everything works in this movie. The villains are perfect. The spy story is very intelligent and challenging. The locations are great. It, it really is uh, the further development of Bond. I mean, if, if the second movie had bombed, then you might not have had a Bond series, but because the second movie was even better uh, than the first movie, it, that's one of the reasons the series has, has continued for so long. So I would agree I, I, with that. I, I, there's almost nothing negative to say here. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, think I, mean, I, was, me, I mean, I think for me what sticks out as the strongest thing here is really the the story and the writing, although it's strong across the board. But the the story and the way it's told is really a standout, I think. Yeah, for coming from the villain's perspective, it it is quite brilliant. Although I will say that the the novel, the novel from Russia with Love, does actually start with, uh, I think, the whole first third of just the villains setting up their plot. Right. I don't think Bond even appears in the first third of the novel. So it's it, it's sort of Fleming it's Fleming's a uh, concept and and again Fleming was around for this movie and they really wanted to uh, be faithful to his book. Absolutely, and he was uh, on location for a good chunk of when they were doing this as well. That's right. Now we should get into the uh, what did we not like on here, and there there are a few things I do think the uh, the portrayal of the gypsies was somewhat stereotyped and a little bit a little bit too much from a European perspective, shall we say? Yeah, I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, especially in the um, 
the the somewhat odd uh, fight between the two women over the chief's son, which was <laughs> a, a little bizarre. I don't know quite what to say about that. Yeah, well, uh, that didn't seem realistic, but it was enter- it was entertaining. Yeah. Uh, in watching the movie, I think I found um, certain aspects of Connery's performance. Uh, you know, his sort of his treatment towards women has always been well known. I mean, he's kind of a well known misogynist to some extent, and like there's some lines where, particularly the one where after they kill Krolenko, where he goes, "She should have kept her mouth shut," which is like it's perfect for the scene itself, but. It's almost funny coming from Connery. It sort of rings wrong now when I hear it. Right. But uh, that's that's a minor point at best. Yeah. It's still a really well done. Everything else about the movie is really good. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The uh, the two women for the the fight with the gypsies were also chosen from uh, from a modeling competition. Yeah. Unsurprising. Oh, I should say the other thing that's one of my favorite things for this movie is quite is definitely the red wine with fish line, because as a kid, oh, you know nothing about etiquette, you know nothing about like the proper wines and 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 anything like that. But in this one scene, they taught millions of people that you're not supposed to drink red, red wine, wine with, with fish. fish, and it's one of those <laughs> things. I mean, I've done it since. I don't feel like I'm a villain oh, or yeah, necessarily uncouth. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the irony is, is, that, is that, no, that, that was the, the standard at the time, and now there's, you know, among wine connoisseurs, there's almost, you know, basically it's like, you know, red wine is the entire field, and, you know, white wine is just that silly thing that uh, nobody really wants to drink. <laughs> exactly. You know, if this was, you know, 40, 40 years later, it's like, you know, no, that line would not have worked. But uh, for the time, it was, uh, it was perfect. <laughs> well, it was that nice little thing that it, it's not even, you know, is, uh, you know, it's because he's a villain that he likes that, but it's how Bond knows he's not who he says he is. He's not this British agent because yeah, he doesn't exactly. know what to drink with his meal. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but there I were mean, some I mean, things that he said earlier that started to tip off Bond as well. But those those little cues that he was picking up on to figure it out, those were uh, those were nicely done. And things like that were used in the later films as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean I, um, from my standpoint, I mean, I, the, you guys have already hit on... Yeah, the 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 things I, that I I would criticize, but uh, but they're from my strictly personal standpoint and personal um, things that I love. Um, there was one thing that really that really struck me this time that hadn't occurred to me on previous viewings. Um, I mean, I've always known you know. I mean, Vladik Shaibel for me is uh, is always going to be the the shadow doctor on. The series UFO. Um, so, you know, seeing him as Cronstein in this, it's uh, you know, it's like you know, I I, I know he's going to go on. To, oh, that's uh, right, of course. Better, better, better things down the line. Um, he didn't make it Inspector, but he makes it pretty pretty good in Shadow. Um, but uh, but one thing that occurred to me with uh, watching it this time was um, the kind of you know the elements of it that uh, were reminding me of The Prisoner. 
you know, that, uh, you know, I think, you know, Magoo may have been picking up on with, you know, the whole, heli- you know, her coming in on the helicopter, the fact that they're all numbered, it's, you know, the fact that he's being trained at this sort of, you know, out, out of the way, you know, sort of, you know, shadowy facility. The, the with, secret uh, island? People, yeah, the yeah. secret island. You know, so that, you know, that's people, what happened to Spectre you know, Island. Yeah, you know, impersonating <laughs> other. It became like, the village? Know, uh, okay. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, that was something that I really hadn't thought about until I was rewatching it this time. And it's like, you know, yeah, wait a minute, this is feeling real familiar. <laughs> yeah, know, that, that yeah. Spect- a Spectre is sort of on neither side. You know, this third party and the the village was. You know, well, which which side are you on? That would be telling. You, know, right. you never know where the yeah. where they sit. So yeah, interesting. Yeah. 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 So yeah. So that, that that's what Spectre. You know, when, when, once Bond was finished with him, they just uh, went into this other line of uh, you know, send us your retired agents, and we'll uh, we'll sort them out for you. So. Nice. Yeah, that's really good. Okay, so I think we've covered most of this. Any final thoughts, guys? No, it's a great movie. It's it's if you're gonna watch huh? a Bond, if you're gonna watch Bond movies, you got to start with these ones because they're really they're they're really yeah. the best. Absolutely. Yeah. They set the tone in so many ways and really have some great stuff in them. And they're snapshots of the era that it's hard to find, frankly. I mean, you really get a sense of Istanbul from that period, the whole Cold War mentality. It's really good. In our next episode, James Bond will return in Goldfinger. So thanks for listening. Take care, folks. Yep. Bye. Good night. Thank you for listening to Hooked on Bond. Find out more at hookedonbond.com or on Facebook. Hooked on Bond is broadcast on Device of Geeks Network at vognetwork.com.